Well, praise the Lord. Amen. What great singing, musical worship. Thank you, music team. I love the cello. That's up here. We got a cello. We're starting a choir, Lord willing. See uh, Kyla Moore if you have questions on the choir, but I just love uh, worshiping alongside one another. Uh, So let's continue our worship now as we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, a very uh, marvelous text, very important text. We're going to be looking uh, at verses 19 through 40, but we're going to read from verses 25 through 34. We'll cover, we'll read all of the rest of the text throughout the message, but for now, for the reading, 25 through 34, Acts chapter 16. So if you'd turn there and then stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful text. And we thank you for the grace that you've shown this you showed to this jailer, and we thank you for the great grace which you've bestowed upon us as well, including the ability to come together now and read your holy and inspired word. Uh, we pray that you'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> in our time together a couple of weeks ago, we made a reference to a common prayer recited by the heads of some Jewish households uh, a prayer which expressed gratitude for, uh, to God for one's position in life, but through negative statements. Namely, I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. <clears throat> These blessings, which modern scholars call the blessings of identity, gradually became a part of the preliminary prayers of the daily morning service. Oh, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. How interesting is it then that we've seen this same God, the same God being addressed, the God of Israel, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of these rabbis and heads of households, uh, the God that they claim to worship, going on to pour out his divine mercy and his divine grace, his amazing grace, uh, upon a woman, a slave, And as we just read, a Philippian jailer, a Gentile, right? 
uh, on the slave girl from our time last week, he poured out his mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, she was set free from her enslavement to an evil spirit as well as from the dominion of her earthly rulers. To the woman Lydia and this jailer, he poured out the greatest example of grace and mercy that can possibly be bestowed upon any human being as he brought them from Philippi to paradise, as he gave them complete forgiveness of sins, a new life in Christ, and an irrevocable reconciliation to their creator for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And while the rabbis and the heads of household who prayed such prayers very likely remained in their sin, perished in their sin, and are therefore being eternally condemned for their sin, this Gentile and this woman, maybe even that slave girl, are currently in the presence of their Lord and glory, offering praises to his names for blessings that far exceed mere ethnic heritage or temporal societal privilege, showing us yet again that his ways are certainly higher than our ways. We've got a lot to get to this morning. We've got eight points, Thomas. Eight points. Eight very brief points. Don't freak out here. But they start back in verse 19, where we see the owners of this once enslaved girl condemning Paul and Silas for robbing them of their cash cow, for casting that demonic spirit who had indwelled and controlled this young woman. Luke says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, remember, that was their hope in life, financial gain, which came through the exploitation and spiritual manipulation of other human beings now gone. That's the, those are the, the real motivations behind their actions here. When they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, <coughs> they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, having threw them in, excuse me, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stock. Again, these <coughs> excuse me, owners claim to be defending the honor of Rome, acting as the patriotic champions of the virtues and values of their charming city here. But in reality, they wanted to inflict pain and vengeance upon these servants of the Most High God for disrupting their business. So they take them to the magistrates, the rulers of the city. They stir up this crowd. Officers come in. They take the clothes off Paul and Silas' back, and they start hitting them with these thick rods, inflicting deep muscle bruising and bleeding, (coughs) which it was tremendous pain, thud after thud after thud. They're just whacking these guys. Then we're introduced to this jailer, okay? And he's a mere order taker at this point. Very likely he was a Roman centurion uh, or a retired soldier who has the responsibility of watching over known criminals and lawbreakers. So they tell this guy, they say, lock these Jewish troublemakers up here and make sure they're secure. So that's what he does. He takes them into the jail. He puts their legs in these wooden planks. He spreads out their legs to the point where they couldn't walk, even if they somehow managed to stand up. Then he binds them 
and he hits the lights for the evening. Now again, if there was ever a time to claim victim status, this would be it, okay? Bodies beaten, egos bruised, ethnic heritage slandered. Remember, these Jews are disturbing our city. Legs and stocks falsely accused, the worst of the worst conditions in this Roman jail cell, and for what? Delivering a young girl from demonic possession. <coughs> and yet, Luke writes in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. John Stott said it is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouth. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. And it is wonderful. It's <coughs> a wonderful example for all Christians, all men and women of God to glean from that even in the worst of the worst conditions and what seems like a hopeless condition, here these guys are singing praises to the Lord. And so can all of us. But how? How, how could they do it? Well, because they trusted completely in the all-sovereign God of the heavens and the earth. They trusted in his divine providence. And they knew they were right where he wanted them to be. And we can say the same, can't we? We can take comfort in the glorious truth that the sovereign God controls every circumstance in our life. Paul himself would go on to write, we know that God causes all things. How many things? All things. All things. That's right. To work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. They were right where they were supposed to be. He called them here, remember? He said no to Bithynia. He said no to Asia. He said, come to Macedonia. Come to Philippi where a woman will be saved, a slave girl will be delivered from her bondage in the heart of a jailer, and the next room over would be perfected and being prepared for what's about to take place here. Even in their pain and their affliction, they knew good and well who was in control, right? And we can have that same assurance. Always reminds me of what Charles Spurgeon, who suffered with all kinds of ailments, both physical and emotional, uh, including severe depression, said this of their pr uh, place in his life. He said, It would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Spurgeon knew where his afflictions had originated. He knew they were used by that same sovereign to shape both his life and his ministry. And this was true of Paul and Silas. So they began to sing hymns. They began to extol and, and praise, sing songs of adoration, not about themselves, not about the, each other, but who? the God who had them in those stocks by his divine providence. Now, St. Augustine said this. A hymn has three characteristics, okay? It must be sung, it must be praise, and it must be to God. They must be to God, and I would say, holy about God. 
Because the truth is, there's only one who is worthy of having hymn songs and uh, spiritual psalms sung about them. And it's not any one of us. It, it's no mere human. It, it's none other than God himself. That's why we place such an emphasis on singing theologically rich, doctrinally sound hymns and songs here each week. We want to sing praises to the Lord Most High for what's been done for us. We want to sing about Him, not ourselves. We want to sing of His perfect and holy character, not our character. Our character is corrupted. We sing of His nature, not ours. We sing of His works, not ours. We sing for His glory, certainly not for our glory. But guess what? When we sing about the majesty of our Lord and his mighty works, we, in turn, will be edified. We will be strengthened. We will be encouraged as we are reminded of who it is that saves us, who shapes us, who keeps us. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Now that's a song worth singing. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I don't want to sing about myself. Or other people? Gag. (laughs) How tired and uninspiring. Let the heathen sing of their vainglorious love for themselves and each other. No, I want to sing about the immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Not our name. James Boyce said this. He said, the great hymns of the church are on their way out. They're not gone entirely, but they are going, and in their place have come trite jingles that have more in common with the contemporary advertising ditties than the Psalms. This is back in the 80s, (laughs) mind you. It's way worse now. He said this. The problem is not uh, so much the style of the music, though trite words fit best, best with trite tunes and harmonies. Rather, it is with the content of the songs. The old hymns express the theology of the Bible in profound and perceptive ways with winsome, memorable language. Today's songs are focused on ourselves. They reflect our shallow or non-existent theology and do almost nothing to elevate our thoughts about God. Worst of all, he says, are songs that merely repeat a trite idea, word, or phrase over and over again. Songs like this are not worship, though they may give the churchgoer a religious feeling. They are mantras, which belong more in a gathering of New Agers than among the worshiping people of God. End quote. The elders here at Lakewood Bible Chapel want to encourage you to sing theologically rich songs and hymns. Songs which tell of the wonder and the majesty of the Lord Most High. Not just on Sunday mornings, by the way, but all throughout the week. Use a hymnal. uh, Incorporate these doctrinally sound songs into your private devotions. Men, lead your families 
and musical praise and adoration to your Lord. And if you don't have a hymnal, we'll take one from one of the seats in front of you. You can take it with you. But you have to use it. Okay, if you're going to take it, you can use it. But you can take one of those, take it home with you. We want you to be singing throughout the week. We should all be singing throughout the week. Back to Paul and Silas who are in this jail, bodies bruised and bloodied, yet singing praises to their sovereign Lord, and the prisoners are listening to them. Next thing you know, in verse 26, Luke writes this. Suddenly there's a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened here. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul's bonds, Silas' bonds, their incarcerated audience, everyone was freed. The doors were open. And this isn't the first time the Lord has used an earthquake as a testimony to his omnipotent power, is it, to display his power. Uh, When Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, Matthew said, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The greatest miracle ever. Christ is risen indeed. He lives. Here we see another miracle. The foundations of this jail, they're shaken. The doors are open. The prisoners are set free. And in the process, this jailer from back in verse 23, this very same jailer was given the wake-up call of a lifetime. It says, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This guy wakes up from a sound sleep. He knows there's been an earthquake. He looks out. He sees the cell doors are open. Immediately, he thinks, oh, no. Surely these guys have bolted on me. And I I know what that means. That means the Roman authorities, they're going to kill me. Not only that, but because the prisoners escaped under my watch, I'm going to have to go through whatever they would have had to go through. Then they'll kill me. Not only that, but the shame and the reproach that will be brought upon my family for my utter failure will be devastating. My name and my honor will be disgraced and that I cannot bear so he's got this sword out he's just ready to end his earthly life but not before he hears a familiar voice cry out the voice of one of the men whom had been beaten and bound the voice of one of the men whom this jailer himself had placed in these painful stocks that spread his legs apart but Paul cried out with a loud voice do not harm yourself we are all here. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I find myself again convicted. Okay? If a representative of the state inflicts many blows upon me, slanders me, bounds me, but, uh, spreads my legs apart and fastens them in wooden stocks, I'm not sure if my first response would be, don't harm yourself. <laughs> in all honesty, a little harm might do them good. But you know what? That's how I respond now. After reading this, after seeing what happens with this jailer here, again, we shouldn't insert ourselves into every narrative account in the Bible. We're not called to do that. We're not Moses. We're not David. We're not Peter. We're not Paul. But we can glean principles from their testimony, can't we? We can see how God used them to bring glory to himself and then uh, seek to imitate them and carry out these principles when and if similar circumstances arise in our lives, right? We'll take the principle from this. Look at this. Paul says this. He says, don't harm yourself. Don't hurt yourself now. We're all here. Nobody is left. Just calm down. Look at the jailer's response in verse 28. 
the jailer called for lights. He rushes in. He tremble, he's trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. He prostrated himself. This, this Roman jailer, this Gentile enforcer, terrified, said, light those lanterns, get some light in this place. Then he goes before these two Jews, and he bows down, faces face before them. Now he bows face down before them. But why? Why does he bow before them? Why Paul and Silas is what I'm asking. Why not all the other prisoners? Well, Luke gives us the reason in verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He recognized why this earthquake had occurred, and he recognized exactly who these men were. In that moment, he recognized what the servant girl had been saying over and over and over again. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you this way of salvation was true. He wasn't talking about physical salvation either. He wasn't asking, what must I do to be saved physically? He survived the earthquakes, right? Or the earthquake. It was over. So he wasn't talking about that. Plus, he was just about to kill himself. He was about to commit suicide. So he's not talking about being saved temporally here. He's saying, I need salvation from the God you worship. I need to be saved from the most high God that you serve. This leads me to believe, and we're given no indication of it anywhere, but this leads me to believe that the hymns that they were singing, the hymns that the other prisoners were listening to, that these hymns were drawn from the divinely inspired scriptures. Again, there's no way for us to know. Luke doesn't say it. <clears throat> but consider the content of some of the hymns Paul and Silas would have grown up singing, okay? Listen to the theology of these Hallel uh, psalms, these praise songs sung at every Jewish festival including the Passover. They would have known these by heart. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 114. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Psalm 115. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord. And righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. It doesn't get much lower than about to commit suicide, does it? That's about as low as you can get. But when I was brought low, he saved me. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and 
The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Finally, Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord has answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side and in my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. salvation. Yeah, it may have been the servant girl or the demon inside of her. It may have been the testimony of the earth trembling, the foundations of this jail trembling that caused this man to ask this monumentally significant question, but I tend to think it was those hymns and those prayers. I tend to think it was Those prayers, in addition to the transforming work of God the Holy Spirit, of course, which moved this man to ask, what must I do to be saved? Is there a better question in all of life? Oh, to be asked that question. Oh, to be brought to the point in our lives where we ask that question. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever given thought to your salvation? Maybe maybe the Lord is preparing your heart this morning. Maybe the Lord is preparing your heart to be able to ask that question this morning. Maybe the Lord has prepared your heart to hear and understand the answer to that question then given by Paul and Silas. Do you want to know what that is? Do you want to know the answer? Well, look in verse 31. That's where the answer is. What must I do to be saved? Answer? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Now, there's a lot in this 31st verse, isn't there? There's been a lot of discussion about this 31st verse. There's been a lot of division over this 31st verse, hasn't there? First of all, notice what Paul and Silas did not say. They didn't give this guy a lecture on theology, okay? On the intricacies of the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. That would have been quite the prophetic miracle in itself, by the way. Notice, though, they didn't try to dissect and determine exactly what he was trying to articulate when he used the word saved. Now, what exactly do you mean? Notice they didn't say anything about the church. They didn't say anything about baptism. They didn't say anything about the Lord's Supper. They didn't even say anything about repentance. They didn't say anything about the need to confess uh, specific sins or about his religious conduct or about his behavior or his language or what kind of clothes he wore or what kind of friends or foods he would have to forsake. They didn't say anything about his having to be a better person. They didn't say anything about his needing to sell all his possessions. They didn't say anything about him having to pray toward Jerusalem five times per day. They didn't say anything about giving to the church. They didn't say anything about his need for quiet time or positive thinking or reflective self-care. 
They just gave him the divine requirement for salvation. Man is saved or, or justified or made right in the sight of the holy God by faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Bishop John Taylor Smith used to tell how he, when he was a chaplain general in the British Army, and the candidates for chaplaincy were brought to him and given a hypothetical situation to deal with. He'd say, now I want you to show me how you would deal with a man. We will suppose that I am a soldier who has been wounded on the field of battle. I have three minutes to live and I'm afraid to die because I do not know Christ. Tell me, how may I be saved and die with the assurance that all is well? Now if the applicant began to beat around the bush or talk about the true church and the ordinances and so on, the bishop would say, that won't do. I've only three minutes to live. Tell me how I can be saved. Tell me what I must do. And as long as Bishop Smith was chaplain general, unless a candidate could answer that question, he could not become a chaplain in the army. So here's the question, Believer, what answer would you give to a man with only three minutes to live? Can you find a better one than this? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, of course, a passage of such tremendous significance requires just a couple of brief comments here. Number one, and I'm not going to belabor this point because we made our convictions clear on the sovereignty of God over salvation a couple of weeks ago. But I do have to ask this, okay? Did Paul just convince this guy to pray a prayer to accept Jesus as his personal savior? Did, did this guy just get emotionally manipulated into the kingdom because of Paul's eloquent words and testimony? Did, did this jailer just conjure up the intellectual prowess necessary to engage the required faith for entrance into the kingdom of God and the subsequent reception of the Holy Spirit? Did this near-suicidal man just get saved because of the decision he made to take Paul and Silas at their word, even though just two hours ago he was bounding their feet in stocks? Of course not. We don't, in our natural state, have the ability to conjure up the faith required to believe, to, to be saved, Right? We have to be given the faith as a gift, which we receive. But we're given the faith by the author and perfecter of faith. We don't have the ability in our lost, fleshly, condemned condition to do anything good, spiritually speaking, apart from the sovereign and merciful intervention of the Holy Spirit of God into our lives, okay? The Holy Spirit who causes those whom he called to be saved. He, he, he prepares the heart to exercise the faith that he gives to those who belong to him. And there is no question about this. There is no question about this. Let me show you. Turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. I just want you to see this in your own Bibles. Romans 
Notice I'm going to Romans 8, not, not Romans 9. That would have been t- way too easy. I'm not going to bring that one up. Look at verse 5, okay? Those who live according to the flesh. Who is that? The natural man. Okay, the unbelieving man or woman. All of us in our natural condition, we were conceived and born in sin, separated from God, right? Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So there goes salvation by adherence to the law. Okay, It is impossible for man to obey God's law. He then says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And there goes salvation by any other means, including intellectual comprehension of of a set of facts or some decision we have no ability to make. We can't do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, how does one please God? By having faith in who he is and what he has done. And we cannot do that, not even a little bit, in our sinful, fleshly, spiritually dead condition. The whole rest of the letter confirms this truth. In our natural state, we are dead men, spiritually speaking. We are dead women, spiritually speaking. So then, what has to happen to us so that we're in a position where we're able to please God? We have to be made what? Alive. That's right. Did we make ourselves alive? No. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ made us alive. The jailer had to be made alive. He had to be given the ability to hear and believe Paul's words, and he was, praise the Lord. By the sovereign grace of his creator, who again chose him and called him from before the foundation of the earth. He, he still believed. He, he still received the gifts of faith and grace. He just did so in accordance with the predetermined will of and through the strength of the one who saved him. Second thing I want to mention here is the term Lord, okay? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Is this a condition for salvation? Does this mean that We must willingly submit and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ and somehow demonstrate this belief before we are saved. Some folks like to think this is taught in churches like ours, but in reality, that's a classic straw man argument, which frankly has done more damage to the American church than any sexual revolution or social justice movement ever could. Okay, in fact, one of the so-called scholars said this, A faithful reading of the entire book of Acts fails to reveal a single passage where people are found to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior in order to be saved. Who said that, though? Nobody's saying that. At least nobody I agree with. 
or the elders here agree with, that you have to actively submit to Jesus as Lord as a prerequisite for salvation. Living in subjection to Christ as Lord is certainly one evidence of salvation. It's an evidence of true and saving faith, but it's not a condition for salvation. I don't believe that at all. Why not? Well, because that type of thinking would, again, be giving us thoroughly corrupted and totally uh, depraved human beings way too much credit in this whole equation. Okay? Paul's simply saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on his person, his whole character and nature, not just a part of his character. And you will believe in Christ's whole character if your heart has been made alive and and has been given the ability to do so. Okay? A true Christian will believe in the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, his subsequent burial, his triumphant resurrection, his penal substitutionary atonement for sinners. And a true Christian will believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, namely that he is the Son of God. He is Lord of all, and a Lord over all. He is uh, kurios. He is our master, our owner, our supreme sovereign. He is both Savior and Lord. Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. When he returns to the earth at the end of the age, he will return treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He will have a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is the master of lords. He is the owner of lords. He is the supreme sovereign over everyone who has ever been called Lord. And Paul is saying here, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to bear the title of believer, you better recognize who it is that you claim to believe in, both his person and his work. All that to say, we don't make Jesus Lord of our lives. Jesus is Lord of our lives. We don't make Jesus, Lord of anything. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And any true believer, any genuine, born-again believer in Christ knows this to be true. We, we need to get these phrases out of our theological vocabulary, like the saying, I was saved when I prayed some prayer in 1978, but it wasn't until 20, 2003 that I made Jesus Lord of my life. That kind of language and principle is found nowhere in Scripture. That that type of language uh, demonstrates a weak theology at best, uh, a contemptible pride at worst. I remember a pastor down in Tennessee said to me, uh, he said, there are two categories of Christians, you know. There are believers and there are disciples. Believers simply agree that Jesus is Messiah and their personal Savior. Disciples are those who go on to follow Jesus and make him Lord. I thought, oh, the poor souls who have been under your teaching all these years. Uh, That's borderline heresy. And I don't throw that word around loosely, flippantly. When Paul says 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's not attaching a condition to our election or to, or to God's choosing us. Our condition is un, our, our election is unconditional. It, it has to be. Okay, if we don't have any spiritual virtue or goodness within our natural fleshly selves or the ability to carry out what is required to save us, then it can't possibly be conditional. We can't do it. Our, our salvation is all of grace. There's no such thing as meritorious grace. Uh, therefore, there's no way that we can make a person submitting to Jesus' lordship a condition for salvation. Submitting to his lordship is an evidence of genuine conversion. That's a different story altogether. But we mustn't add anything to the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Again, all that to say, Jesus is Lord. Whether you submit to Jesus as Lord or not. He is Lord. He is my Lord and he's your Lord. Even if you're an unbeliever here today, Christ is your Lord, and one day that tongue of yours will confess it. One day you will bow before him as Lord, even if you don't believe in him today. But by that time, it will be too late as far as salvation is concerned. For believers here, and in the meantime, Jesus is always our Lord, not just when you choose to become a disciple. That type of thinking is so dangerous. All true believers are followers and disciples of Christ the moment the Lord saves them. So try not to get caught up in these uh, silly little semantical debates within evangelicalism. I hesitated to even bring it up, but I had to do it. had to do it. Paul is simply saying to this man, whose heart had already been transformed who was already chosen, who was already called, who was already predestined, who was already elected, he's saying, now believe in Jesus. Believe in the person and the work of Jesus, which he does, of course. It was inevitable because God regenerated his heart, giving him the ability to do so. And as a result, as a result, it's God alone who will receive all the glory for this miraculous conversion. Okay, not 99.9999% of it. And we get the other 0.0001% because we believed. That's just not how it works. He gets all the glory because he did all the saving. And, and immediately we see some evidences or indications that this was in fact a genuine transformation or conversion. Luke writes in verse 33, he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And there you go. That's what Paul and Silas told him, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's how it was. His whole household was transformed by the amazing grace of God based on their own individual election their own individual calling and regeneration and faith, meaning they weren't saved on account of the jailer's faith, as some have erroneously taught, but they were saved by their own individual faith that was given them as a gift by the author and perfecter of faith, just like all of us, right? I'm not saved because my grandpa was saved. 
I'm not saved because my dad was saved, just like my kids aren't saved because I'm saved, because I believe. Everyone has the responsibility to exercise the faith that's been graciously given them by the Lord. Don't miss this now, okay? This guy who just two hours before hauling Paul and Silas into prison, maybe even inflicted a few blows upon them along the way, now treats their wounds and washes away the blood. Now, I'd say this is a pretty good indication that he himself had been washed clean, but in the precious blood of Christ. Then he was baptized. Again, demonstrating for us that while regeneration precedes faith, salvation precedes water baptism. We could literally spend months in these 10 verses. So many rich theological truths here. We talk about lordship, we talk about salvation, talk about suicide. We didn't even talk much about suicide. We could have spent all kinds of time, but we only have five minutes left. So let's draw our time to a close here by looking at the hypocrisy of these magistrates who, for some reason, and Luke doesn't tell us, all of a sudden decide to let Paul and Silas go. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer, the same now converted jailer in in no danger of being executed uh, for all the prisoners were accounted for, the same now Christian jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now. Go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them. They took them out, asked them to leave the city. Paul says, are you kidding me? You guys pretended to care so much about the integrity of Roman culture, yet you were the ones who neglected to obey some of her most important laws. The the right to fair trial, the right to appeal to Caesar, and the exemption from certain punishments for Roman citizens, of which I am one. So is he. And Luke says the magistrates, they were afraid. And that's right, they were afraid. Of course they were afraid. If news of this were to get back to Caesar, they would be in a lot of trouble here and could end up getting sentenced themselves here. But Paul, he doesn't go easily. Why not? Is he just being difficult to be difficult here? To, to be prideful, to rub his citizenship in their faces? No, the, the truth is he didn't want to go quietly because he wanted to make sure that the people of the city knew that they were dealt with in an unjust manner. They were innocent of all charges. Why is this important? Well, because he was about to leave behind Lydia. He was about to leave behind this jailer. He didn't want to leave these new believers in this type of hostile environment here. Even, even Luke would end up staying back in Philippi. Notice in verse 40, the narrative switches from we to they. So all this time he's been saying, we, 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 we saw this, we saw that. Now he's saying they. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now you'd think it would be Lydia and the gang who would be the ones encouraging Paul and Silas after all they'd been through. Yet, here we see Luke saying that it was Paul and Silas that were the ones doing all the encouraging. And because of this, the application is clear. Okay? And I believe it comes in a later letter to, from Paul to the now church 
in Philippi, whom he tells, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's it. That's the application. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rejoice no matter the circumstances, no matter the trials, no matter the pain, no matter the loneliness, no matter the hurt. And you can rejoice knowing that the sovereign Lord of all creation is at hand, knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You can take comfort in the reality that the Lord accomplished his purposes in Philippi. Take comfort in in the example given in this woman the slave girl and this Gentile take comfort in the truths of this marvelous gospel, which is the power of God for salvation for all who would believe. And then live out the rest of your days on earth and all of an eternity thereafter, rejoicing that you are one of those. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and we'll have uh, Noel and the music team.